Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. And this is People of the Book, still um, enjoying the 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 great feelings around last week's show when we had Simon Sedag Montefiore and Heather Morris in. If anyone missed that show. It is available on podcast, so you can just go to the M websites, go to podcasts, scroll down till Friday, look for people of the book, and it's there. I've also posted it on the Facebook page of People of the Book, which is a great resource for any, anyone who loves reading and books and wanting to know what we've discussed on the show. So if you do go to Facebook, Search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And when the Facebook page comes up, the most recent post has been the, the, the link to the podcast of our hour long interview, which I call Writing History. And that was the interview with Simon Sabag Montefiore and with Heather Morris. Now for Today, to start off, just looking forward to next week, I'm trying to get Dan Pinnock and Colin Bell into the studio next week. And you're going to say, but I've never heard of them. Who are Don Pinnock and Colin Bell? They are the compilers of a magnificent science, natural science um, conservation book called The Last Elephants. It's a book that's published by Straight Nature. It's available in the shops. There will be a launch in Johannesburg next week, Thursday night, which is why they will be in Johannesburg. So hopefully, if everything goes as planned, they will join us in the studio. Elephants are among the most intelligent mammals on Earth and predate man in Africa. They have watched us grow from the early inhabitants of Africa to the rulers of the planet. Yet in Africa, now this is a shocking statistic, an elephant is killed every 15 minutes. Each furtive, blood-soaked event contributing to the greater carnage that could result in the total extermination of the species. All to support a human desire for ivory trinkets. The scale of the disaster in relation to the triviality of its purpose is preposterous, and a terrible indictment on the human species. This book, The Last Elephants, is in part a response to the Great Elephants Census Report of 2016, which starkly revealed the steep decline in elephant numbers in most parts of the African continent. It has been written by game rangers, guards, scientists, activists, academics and poets across Africa as a plea and a call to action to save wild elephants before it's too late. It also contains the images of many of the continent's top wildlife photographers. This is our bid to prevent the extinction of one of nature's most sentient and worthy creatures. We condemn those who kill elephants. We rebuke those who use ivory. We call out to those who are indifferent. We celebrate those who protect elephants. We owe no less to our gentle grey companions on life's journey. So that's from the back of the book, The Last Elephants. It was compiled by Don Pinnock and Colin Bell. 
It has a forward from His Royal Highness Prince William, Duke of Cambridge. It is a magnificent, magnificent book. The pictures throughout the book are unbelievably moving, powerful. Pictures of elephants, pictures of conservation, pictures of poachers trying to it's an activist book trying to rid the Africa of the, Africa of the scourge of elephant poaching. It's called The Last Elephants, and hopefully we'll have Don Pinnock and Colin Bell, or one of them, in the, or in the studio next week to talk about this book, which I think deserves a full hour show. We'll be back with this week's book straight after the ad break. Book of Love is long and boring. This is People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. In these challenging times, many people are under pressure, and for some, it can all become too much. Who does one turn to? Chai FM will be starting a helpline later this year, and we are looking for compassionate, caring volunteers to train as call center counselors. If you have a background or an interest in counseling and you want to find out more, email helpline at chaifm.com. Chaifm, 101.9 megahertz of serving the community. And on to today's books. The first book I'm going to talk about is non-fiction. It's very topical. Just arrived at my desk purely by chance. I didn't request it, but it's the type of book that we have to talk about. It's called The Price of Paradise, How the Suicide Bomber Shaped the Modern Age. It's written by a British journalist, activist, Ian Overton. Ian Overton is the executive director of Action on Armed Violence. In this role, he oversees the the AOAV's research and advocacy output. He advises as a member of an expert working group on explosive weapons for the Geneva International Center for Humanitarian Demanding. He sits on the advisory committee to the UK's all-party parliamentary group on explosive weapons and is an expert member of the Forum on the Arms Trade. He also sits on the advisory board of the NIHR Global Health Research Group on Post-Conflict Trauma and also at Protect at Imperial College London. Having worked in over two dozen conflict zones, a former BBC and ITN journalist, Overton's human rights reporting has been awarded a Peabody Award, two Amnesty Awards and a BAFTA Scotland Award. He's also been shortlisted for the Golden Dagger Award, among many other prizes and nominations. He has spoken at the United Nations, the Oxford Union, Harvard, Cambridge, the London School of Economics, Chatham House, as well as the Edinburgh and Hay Book Festivals on issues relating to armed violence. He's also written for The Guardian, The LA Times, The IB Times, The Independent and Huffington Post. His first book, Gun Baby Gun, was published in the UK in April 2015, and it was about the gun industry. Since then, it's been translated into many languages. And his second book, The Price of Paradise, which is published by Quirkus, looks at how suicide bombers have helped shape the modern world. It's already been translated into a number of other European languages, and it is an important book. We live in the age of the suicide bomber. From attacks in the streets of Paris and London to murders in marketplaces in Kabul and Baghdad, the suicide bomber is the real weapon 
of mass destruction, killing and injuring over a quarter of a million people since its first occurrence in 19th century Russia. But what leads men and women to blow themselves up, believing they will usher in a utopia they'll never inhabit? How did so many modern jihadists come to adopt its use? And what part did suicide bombing play in the rise of communism, the dawn of the nuclear age, and the creation of a seemingly endless global war on terror? In the book, The Price of Paradise, which is bold and fascinating, Ian Overton looks at how the suicide bomber has changed the world we live in. So that's The Price of Paradise. Now, in order to make it a little bit more accessible, I want to read the prologue. We live in the age of the suicide bomber. Today, their threat looms over our cities and our families, from Brussels to Baghdad, Cairo to Kabul, London to Lahore. Whether it was the 9-11 attacks or the crises that continue to engulf the Middle East, bombings in the heart of Europe, or assaults on bar and on Muslims the world over, the suicide bomber has become a defining feature of the modern era, a symbol to some of unbridled inhumanity, to others of the ultimate sacrifice. It is a form of violence that has changed the world. Suicide bombers are the real weapons of mass destruction. In total, since the first suicide bomber killed the Tsar of Russia in 1881, this weapon has ended the lives of over 72,000 people and, and injured at least twice that, many of them in the last decade. Such attacks have proved more harmful than many airstrikes, have been able to kill more in one explosion than any gun massacre has ever done, and have triggered military counter-responses that almost inevitably, have proved more lethal than the threat they set out to defeat. They are also on the rise. Of the ten worst explosive incidents the world has witnessed between 2011 and 2018, seven were by suicide bombers, putting it in another way. In 1976, there were no suicide bombs anywhere in the world. Forty years later, in 2016... That year saw 28 countries witnessing 469 attacks. This weapon of the week has invoked terror like none other, helping level the field of battle and challenge militaries to their core. Used against civilians and occupying forces alike, suicide attacks have shown themselves to be cheap, brutally effective and terrifyingly unexpected, and they have been profoundly impactful. They and the inevitable counterattacks have fueled the creation of fortress, fortresses Europe and America, helped destabilize entire nations, justified the passing of laws that endanger our civil liberties, while all the time fanning the flames of a seemingly endless war on terror. How did this weapon gain such a hold over us? How did it get to the point that teenagers in Manchester or Paris are being targeted at concerts and football matches, how is it that we now read on a weekly basis about suicide attacks killing dozens of civilians in this country or that? And why are so many people willing to put on a bomber's vest convinced their murderous death would usher in a brave new world? Reading from the prologue to The Price of Paradise, How the Suicide Bomber Shaped the Modern Age by Ian Overton, published by Quirkus. These such such questions have led me to write this book. 
It is an attempt to unpick what has driven the suicide bomber's violent rise, to trace the roots of this terrible weapon and ultimately to capture what has been born in the ensuing mayhem. In so doing, it aims to chart how, by fighting fire with fire, we have risked setting the whole world ablaze. It is a search that has led me around the world to interview failed suicide bombers, to sit with still grieving families, to listen to victims racked with pain. It is one driven by an ambition of sorts to walk in the same footsteps of men and, as me, of men and women walking their last steps to martyrdom, to listen to those who would wage holy war and to speak to those who would stop them. It has found me visiting memorials and sites of massacres, radical mosques and belligerent militaries, all the while trying to remember how this violent epoch of the suicide bomber was born, and what can be done and what must be done to stop it. The trigger to write this book came in early November 2015. On a Geneva day that was swiftly fading into night, I found myself talking to a group, to a room of United Nations United Nations diplomats about suicide attacks. In my concluding words, I said, it is not if, but when there will be a suicide strike at the very heart of a European city. Less than a week later, 130 people were killed in Paris as seven terrorists armed with guns and suicide vests wreaked havoc upon stadiums, concerts, cafes and restaurants. And in reading the reams of news that came out about that attack, I realized that I did not fully understand what paths had led these men to kill in such a terrible and random way. This book was a personal journey to find a greater illumination to that darkness. And certainly there is darkness. When you sit down and look at the raw data, it is easy just to see how, to see hard numbers. There have been over 13,500 recorded suicide attacks since the, their first use. We're known well over 90% of these attackers were men, and nine-tenths of the victims were men also. 55 countries have suffered from a bombing, with about a quarter of a million people harmed along the way. Iraq has been by far the worst implicated, followed by Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, and Nigeria. The bombings are perpetrated mainly by those heralding a warped sense of Islam, with ISIS, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and Boko Haram, the most persistent proponents in the modern age. This is from the pr prologue to The Price of Paradise, How the Suicide Bomber Shaped the Modern World, written by Ian Overton, published by Quirkus. We'll be back after this ad break. The book of love is long and boring. This is People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. Staying with weighty nonfiction, Looking at the new book by Jared Diamond, it's called Upheaval, How Nations Cope with Crisis and Change. Jared Diamond is a very well-known, best-selling author of not, what I call weighty nonfiction. In his landmark international bestsellers, Gun, Germs and Steel, and then his later book, Collapse, Jared Diamond transformed our understanding of what makes civilizations rise and fall. Now he reveals how successful nations recover from crisis and assesses the gravest problems the world faces. Exhibiting the awe-inspiring grasp of history, geography, economics, and anthropology that marks all Diamond's works, his new book, Upheaval, shows us how seven countries have survived defining upheavals in the recent past through selective change, 
a process of painful self-appraisal and adaptation more commonly associated with personal trauma. From the forced opening up of Japan and the Soviet invasion of Finland to the Pinochet regime in Chile, Diamond shows us how both nations and individuals can become more resilient. Looking ahead to the future, he investigates whether the United States and the world are squandering their natural advantages and are on a devastating path towards catastrophe. Is this phase inevitable, or can we still learn from the lessons of the past? Who is Jared Diamond? He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. He's a professor of geography at UCLA, and as you've heard, he brings together history, geography, economics, and anthropology. He's a noted polymath. His work has been influential in the fields of anthropology, biology, ornithology, ecology, and history, among many other fields. In this book, as said, he looks at seven countries that went through crises, or defining crisis. His central thesis in the book is that countries deal with trauma, or they can deal with trauma in the same way that people do. If people face a crisis and they have the ability to pull through and come out more resilient and more successful after the crisis, why not nations? And he identified seven countries that he had traveled to a lot, so he was very familiar with their history, their culture, their society, and with a crisis that they faced. And he looked at how they faced their crisis, just like an individual faces a trauma. There's Finland's war with the Soviet Union, the origins of modern Japan, Chile for all Chileans, Indonesia, the rise of a new country, rebuilding Germany, that's post-World War II, and then Australia, who are we? Um, and in the third part, in the next part of the book, he goes through nations in the world, crises underway. What lies ahead for Japan? What lies ahead for the United States? Strengths and the biggest problem. What lies ahead for the United States? The other three problems that the U.S. faces. What lies ahead for the world? And he finally finishes with lessons, questions, and outlooks. So this is Jared Diamond. We are using broad sweeps of multidisciplinary approaches to big weighty historical crises that individual countries faced and then looking towards the future the major events facing the United States, Japan and then the entire world. So if you like your non-fiction weighty very very well researched these two books will make perfect reading. The first one is Ian Overton's The Price of Paradise how the suicide bomber shaped the modern age. And the second book is Upheaval, How Nations Cope with Crisis and Change by Jared Diamond. Now to go to, I'm just going to mention this. I've just started reading it. Also, Rav landed on my book reviewing desk and it absolutely, I did request it because the topic just absolutely got my brain working overtime. As I mentioned last week, I teach history, and I find the voyages of discovery and the early colonization of the world by European powers a fascinating window into the past. So when the book Yasuki, the true story 
of The Legendary African Samurai by Thomas Lockley appeared on in a email uh put my name down for a review copy. The remarkable life of the first foreign born samurai and his astonishing journey from northeast Africa to the hearts of Japanese society. When Yasuki arrived in Japan in the late 1500s, he had already traveled much of the known world. Kidnapped as a child, he ended up a servant and bodyguard to the head of the Jesuits in Asia, with whom he traversed India and China, learning multiple languages as he went. He was born in Africa, high up in the, along the banks of the Nile River. He first went from there to Ethiopia and to Egypt, and then India, China, and finally Japan. But this was in the 1500s, the second part of the, of the, of the 16th century. So it's early days in the globalized world under the Portuguese. And he ended up in China. His arrival, sorry, in Japan, yeah, India, China, and then Japan. His arrival in Kyoto caused a commotion. Most Japanese people had never seen an African man before, and many saw him as the embodiment of the black-skinned Buddha from local tradition. He was six foot two, and he was so well built with rippling muscles, he appeared not just as an exotic on the shores of Japan, but he was eventually made into a samurai. Among those who were drawn to his presence was Lord Nobunaga, head of the most powerful clan in Japan, who made Yasuki a samurai in his court. Soon, Yasuki was living the traditions of Japan's martial arts and ascending the upper echelons of their society. The book Yasuki presents the never-before-told biography of the singular figure, one whose travels between countries, cultures, and classes offer a new perspective on race in world history and a vivid portrait of life in medieval Japan. Now, if that just if that doesn't make you want to head to the shops, pick up a copy of Yasuki and spend the weekend immersing yourself in global, globalized 16th century Portuguese and Japanese history with stops in Persia, India, and China along the way. It's just the most fascinating slice of history. So that's what I'm currently reading. Now to get through a whole lot of other books that I think our readers and our listeners will find fascinating and interesting. The next book is a book called The The Braid. It's written by Letitia Columbani, and it's been translated from French into English. It is a major international bestseller. Before it was translated and sold and, and hit the English market, it really has sold 350,000 copies worldwide. It's been translated into 28 languages. The author, Letitia Columbani, is an acclaimed screenwriter and director. And the book is about three women. Smita, who lives in India. She's an untouchable, the lowest caste in, British, in, Engl- in, in Indian society. She dreams of seeing her daughter escape the future she seems destined for. Then there's Julia in Sicily. She's an assistant in her family's wig-making workshop, the last of its kind in Palermo, who must take up the reins when her father is gravely injured. And then there's Sarah in Canada. 
a lawyer at the top of her game who is about to receive a verdict that will shatter her seemingly perfect existence. When Smitta sacrifices her precious hair in her flight from poverty with her daughter, this gift will pass from one woman to another as their stories collide in unexpected ways, unknown to each other but woven together by their courage in the face of impossible odds. What drew me to this book is the idea of hair wigs and religious Jewish communities. Shaitals are something that everybody knows about and talks about, but this is looking at hair from and wigs, but from a different perspective. Letitia Columbani's The Braid is one of those elegantly structured novellas that manages to pack a great deal into fewer than 200 pages. These three women's stories intersect in a way that none of them can imagine when the book begins. They will remain unknown to each other, yet each will have played a crucial role in changing the other's lives. Smita is a Dalit in the Indian province of Uttar Pradesh, an untouchable, whose job is to empty the latrines by hand. The ostracism of Dalits from society was outlawed by Mahatma Gandhi, yet Smita and her rat-catcher husband continue to be spurned by all those around them. Smita is determined that her six-year-old daughter won't suffer the same humiliation, and is prepared to go to any lengths to protect her. Julia works for her father in Sicily, preparing hair for wig makers in a family business that has been established for generations. When her father is left comatose after an accident, Julia discovers that all is not what it seems with their finances. Her Sikh lover offers a solution which isn't welcomed by everyone. And then Sarah is a partner in a Montreal law firm, a position hard won and at great cost. She never mentions her children at work hiding domestic difficulties and maternal guilt behind a mask of calm capability. Illness cannot be countenanced. When Sarah finds she has cancer, she tucks the knowledge away, scheduling a treatment to fit in with work. The author, Columbani, uses the conceit of telling the stories of Smitter, Julia and Sarah through a wig maker, interweaving their three separate narratives into a braid. It's a device that works well. The wig maker makes a brief appearance at the start and the end of the book, with the occasional interpolation in between. Each of the stories explores the societies in which these three women live. Smith's abject poverty, locked into a caste system sustained by corruption and lack of education. Resistance to Julia's innovation in traditional male-dominated Sicilian society. And Sarah's discovery that the glass ceiling hasn't been entirely shattered in her intensely competitive law firm, where loyalty counts for nothing. All three women cha- changes. All all three women changes their, change their lives for the better on their own terms, facing apparently insurmountable problems with courage and determination. It's a heartening story, fable-like in its telling, but not sugar-coated, and it is an appealing one. Once again, it's proof of the power of a short novel or a novella to really get to grips with major issues. So that is The Braid by Letitia Columbani, published by Picador. The next book we're going to look at is um, historical fiction, and it's called Things in Jars. It's written by Jess Kidd and... The publisher is Cannon Gate. London, 1863. Briddy Devine 
the finest female detective of her age is taking on her toughest job case yet, reeling from her last job and with her reputation in tatters. A remarkable puzzle has come her way. Christabel Berwick has been kidnapped, but Christabel is no ordinary child. She's not supposed to exist. As Briddy fights to recover the stolen child, she enters a world of fanatical anatomists, crooked, surgeon, crooked surgeons, and mercenary showmen. Anomalies are in fashion, curiosities are the thing, and fortunes are won and lost in the name of entertainment. The public love the spectacle, and Christabel may well prove the most remarkable spectacle London has ever seen. This is Victorian Gothic, written by Jess Kidd. And if there was an Oscar ceremony for books, then Jess Kidd's Victorian Gothic mystery, Things in Jars, would surely sweep the board. The book's heroine, Brady Devine, is a shoe-in for best female character in a leading role. The detective with a talent for reading corpses in a London awash with the freshly murdered. Bridy is rumoured to wear a dagger strapped to her thigh, smokes a pipe of Prudhoe's bronchial balsam blend. You add lots of Prudhoe's blend for colourful thoughts and triple that amount for no thoughts at all. And she is a captain of herself. The best male character goes to Ruby Doll, the ghost of a champion boxer who rises from his grave clad only in a top hat and laced boots and white drawers to traipse around London after Briddy. His rival for her affections is Inspector Valentine Rose of Scotland Yard, who Ruby concedes has the advantage, at least, of being living. Together they form the most affecting supernatural love triangles since the movie Ghost. The frontrunner for best female character in a supporting role is Briddy's terrifying seven-foot-tall housemaid, Cora Butter, but there's another contender in the form of six-year-old Christabel Berwick, an oddity of nature with park teeth who smells of the sea and draws people's memories out of them. Christabel has been kept hidden away from the world in her father's country mansion, her existence known only to four people until the night she disappears. Briddy is called on to investigate a kidnapping, which may or may not be connected to the discovery behind the wall of the crypt in a Highgate chapel, of bodies of a woman and her infant child. Stranger yet, Christabel's abduction seems to have brought on a surreal weather event. Amid torrential rains, the Thames rises, flooding basements and overwhelming cesspits. Choral music is heard from the river, either sung backwards or in a foreign language. Things in Jars is pure London, uh, Victorian gothic and kid is a writer who's not afraid of having fun with her characters and her plot but for all its human color and there's plenty of both this is the story of a serious evil the cruelty of christabel's abduction is shocking but it's by no means the only instance of cruelty in the book macabre dealings may be the subject matter of things in jars but tenderness is at the heart of it so if you'd like to read a really fan- fantastic historical Victorian Gothic, then Things in Jars by Jess Kidd, published by Cannon Gate, is just for you. Now, staying in Victorian 
England, London, going back a little bit earlier to the 1850s, is a debut novel called The Doll Factory by Elizabeth McNeil. And it is published by Picador, and they are telling us that it is the most coveted debut of 2019. And it's, it's out. Elizabeth McNeil's debut historical novel arrives with the same fanfare from the publishers of Jesse Burton's The Miniaturists. That's Picador at Macmillan. Jesse Burton's wildly successful historical novel of 2014, The Miniaturist, was set in Amsterdam. And just on a side point, Jessie Burton's second novel was called The Muse, and her third novel is going to come out later this year. And Jessie Burton is published by the same publisher as Elizabeth McNeil, uh, whose book is The Doll Factory. So that's something to look forward to, a new Jessie Burton. But now back to The Doll Factory. McNeil is a talented writer, and this is a frankishly what we call Moorish novel because you just want to read more and more before you go to bed. This is London in the 1850s. MacNeil's heroine, Irish Whittle, was born with a slight deformity, which has not dented her sanguine temperament, unlike her once beautiful but now bitter and pockmarked twin sister Rose. It also doesn't prevent her from catching the eye. This deformity doesn't present, doesn't prevent Iris Whittle from catching the eye of the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. The group of artists The sisters paint the faces on China dolls In Mrs. Salter's doll emporium But Iris has ambitions To become a painter She also has an admirer in the sinister Taxidermist Silas Reed At one stage he imagines Her bladder within her wet and pink Like the inside of a peach And then apart from her Dried out and white Like a crisp pig's ear McNeil refreshingly portrays Iris as neither saintly nor willful Instead, she resembles a modern woman in her desire to exceed expectations for her life without abandoning those she loves and must, to an extent, leave behind. McNeil's London is vividly rendered. And uh, we've got more to say about this book, The Doll Factory by Elizabeth McNeil. We'll be back with descriptions of London and confectionery in 1850s London straight after this ad break. The Book of Love is long and boring. This is People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. We're looking at a book called The Doll Factory. It's a debut novel by Elizabeth McNeil. And the main character in the book, who is Iris Whittle, shares something in common. And the book shares something in common with one of the books that... Uh, we loved last year here on People of the Book and we interviewed the author that was the book The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock the author was Imogen Hermes Gower and in that book um, Angelica Neal the heroine had an appetite for it was uh, the late 1700s for the confectionery and we had whole menus of the beautiful pastries that she would eat here Iris has an appetite for confectionery as well. But in her case, it's for toffee caramels. And to continue that conceit, 
reading the book, The Doll's Factory, is a little bit like gorging on sweets. Now, when we interviewed Imogen Hermes, Imogen Hermes Gower, she actually, I asked her about all this confectionery, and she said she actually got recipes from the time, and she recreated the different foods in her own kitchen. So I don't know if Elizabeth McNeil has done that as well for the doll factory. If we have an interview, we can ask her. But the, the whole idea of food and, and confectionery between the different time eras in London does make a nice connection between those two books, The Doll Factory and uh, Mrs. Han- The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. The Doll Factory is a page turner, make no mistake. Um, but it's one of those rare instances in books where you actually would have preferred if the writer would have slowed down a little bit so you could savor everything just a little bit longer. McNeil writes wonderfully, wonderful descriptions, but, uh, as I said, sometimes the breathless plot gets ahead of her. And so this is the book, The Doll Factory. It's set in 1850s London, the pre-Raphaelite. There's a taxidermist who's got dark motives on the heroine, Iris. And it's altogether a wonderful historical read. The next book that we're going to look at is, yeah, we're going to look at a few more historical reads. The first one is called The Glove Makers. This is published by Mantle. For almost four years, men came to my cabin carrying trouble on their backs, each one haunted and looking over his shoulder. They showed up during the spring. They appeared in the summer and early fall, but never, now never, in January. Winter 1888, in the inhospitable lands of Utah Territory, glove maker Deborah Tyler awaits her husband's return home after months working across the state. But as his due date comes and goes without a word, Deborah starts to fear the worst. Facing a future alone, matters are only compounded when a desperate strange arrives on her doorstep, and with him comes trouble. For although the man claims to just need a place to rest for the night, he wouldn't be there in the bitter month of January if he wasn't on the run. And where he goes, lawmen are soon to follow. Lawmen who wouldn't think twice about burning Deborah's house to the ground if they thought she'd help their fugitive. With her husband's absence felt stronger by the minute, Deborah must make a decision, a decision that will change her life forever, forever. Deborah is a Mormon living in Junction, a small little town in the bottom of a canyon surrounded by stark red cliffs. There's seven other families, and... This is where the glove, she's a glove maker, and this is where the story starts. The glove maker is written by Anne Weisgarber. It's an engrossing, troubling, honest to goodness novel about the Utah backlands. It's a historical fiction, and Anne Weisgarber is the Orange Prize long-listed author of The Personal History of Rachel Dupree. So that's one more historical fiction novel and for the next book we're going to look at just a very short shout out this is a book that I think a lot of people have waited for it, it is called The Rosy Result it's by Graham Simpson and it is the third and concluding book uh, in 
the trilogy, the ro- which started with the rosy project, then the rosy effect, and now this is the rosy result. Seven million people in 42 countries fell in love with Don and Rosie's story. But what happens when the happy ever after isn't the one you wanted? It's been 12 years since Don met Rosie, the world's most incompatible woman, according to his wife project. 4,380 days of marriage later, they are happily following Don's life contentment graph. House, job, child milestones all successfully achieved. That is until an unfortunate video of Don inadvertently goes viral, leading to a sudden downward trend on the life graph. With his career in academia in pieces, his family falling apart and suffering from a self-inflicted wound caused by over-enthusiastic oyster shucking, Don is in need of saving. But is opening a cocktail bar the way to do it? And also, Don and Rosie's son also has, uh, he he exhibits a certain amount of autistic uh, tendencies, becomes the focus of their life as well. So those people who loved the, the, the previous two books, The Rosie Project and The Rosie Effect, Prepare yourself for the rosy result, the funniest, smartest, biggest-hearted novel of 2019, and it concludes the rosy trilogy. So that is contemporary fiction. Now, for something completely, completely different, uh, this is the skit and Donna for <laughs> all the men there out there who like their... He liked their, their reads to be very exciting. Uh, lots of action. The book's called Mission Critical, and it's by Mark Greeny. Now, it's the first Mark Greeny book I've ever seen. But apparently, this is the eighth in a series called The Grey Man se- Thriller Series. Um, and uh, Mark Greeny has quite a big following. Two seemingly unconnected but roughly simultaneous events kick off the bountiful non-stop action in Mark Greene's new Grey Man novel. As I said, it's called Mission Critical. At the mostly unused airbase, at a mostly unused airbase at Turnhill in England's West Midlands, a transfer is taking place. CIA agents are handing off a hooded prisoner named Dirk Fisser to their British counterparts. And at the sensitive comp Departmented information facility, the C, the SCIF. Somebody has printed out a profile package of long dead General Theodor Ivanovich Zakharov, former head of the GRU. But nothing is ever really unconnected in a grey man novel. The prisoner handoff falls to pieces when a team of operatives attacks to abduct Fisser and a separate team of gunmen apparently set in motion by the downloading of the Zakharov file attack a CIA safe house in Virginia intent on killing everybody inside much bloodshed ensues but there are two crucial exceptions the special guest in the safe house Zoya Zakharov, the general's daughter is more than a match for the gunmen and there's a survivor of the Turnhill attack as well, a lone CIA contractor named Court Gentry once hunted by the agency under the name Grey Man, 
now leased to them on a wary basis, codenamed Violator. This is the starting point of Mark Greeny's mission critical. A prisoner is kidnapped, the hunt is on. It's a Grey Man thriller. The nice thing about the Grey Man thriller series is it doesn't matter which one you start. They all stand alone, even though they do all use the same character, Grey Man. And if you're looking for one of those Greg Hurwitz-style books that just keep going and going with Van Dillen and pumping higher and higher, look out for Mark Greeny's Mission Critical and then get into the Grey Man series. We'll be back with the last few books for this show straight after this ad break. Book of Love is long and boring. This is People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. The last few books in our last few minutes for this week. A theme that has been coming through in publishing recently is fairy tales for adults. Either the retelling of fairy tales or using fairy tale motifs in books for adults. And the book Gingerbread by Helen Oyoyemi, a Nigerian author, is firmly part of this contemporary pattern. Perdita Lee may appear to be your average schoolgirl. Harriet Lee may seem just a working mother trying to penetrate the the school social hierarchy, but there are signs that they might not be as normal as you think they are. For one thing, they share a gold-painted seven-floor flat with some surprisingly verbal vegetation. And then there's the gingerbread they make. Londoners may find themselves able to take or leave it, but it's very popular in Druhastrana, the faraway and, according to Wikipedia, non-existent land of Harriet Lee's early youth. In fact, the world's truest lover of the Lee family gingerbread is Harriet's charismatic childhood friend, Gretel Kirchavel, a figure who seems to have had a hand in everything, good or bad, that has happened to Harriet since they met. Years later, when teenage Perdita sets out to find her mother's long-lost friend, it prompts a new telling of Harriet's story, as well as a reunion or two. As we follow the Lees through encounters with jealousy, ambition, family grudges, work and wealth, gingerbread seems to be the one thing that reliably holds a constant value. The book Gingerbread has been influenced by the mysterious place gingerbread holds in classic children's stories. Equal parts wholesome and uncanny. This book by beloved novelist Helen Oyoyemi invites readers into a delightful tale of a surprising family legacy in which the inheritance is a recipe, endlessly surprising and satisfying, written with Helen Oyoyemi's inimitable style and imagination. Gingerbread is a true feast for the reader. It's got a beautiful cover, very, very picture, uh, fairy tale type of a cover. And this is one more fairy tale for adults. So that's Helen Oyoyemi's Gingerbread. It is published by Picador. And there's time for one more book. I just want to mention the author Joe Ard. He's the author of a series called the RQ Novels. They sit in Los Angeles. RQ stands for Isaiah Quintabi who is a detective in Los Angeles. He's never been more successful or felt more alone. A series of high-profile wins in his hometown of East Long Beach 
have made the young investigator so notorious that he can hardly go to the corner store without being recognized. Dodson won his sidekick. Now his full-fledged partner is determined to give their PR business some legitimacy. A Facebook page, and Aki's promise to stop accepting sweaters, winter sweaters and carpet cleaners in exchange for his services. When a young painter approaches Aki for help tracking down his missing sister, it's not the work Isaiah is looking for. It's the human connection. But when his new confidant turns out to be connected to a dangerous paramilitary operation, and when the gangsters responsible for his brother's death is still lurking around every corner, RQ is soon battling threats even a genius couldn't see coming. The other RQ novels written by Joe Ard are RQ and Righteous. Joe Ard grew up in South Central Los Angeles. He loved the Sherlock Holmes books by, uh, by, by Conan Doll, uh, and he has put that love for Sherlock Holmes and Watson into his RQ books. So that's RQ Isaiah Quintubby and his Watson is Dodson. Pretty close uh, reference there. Uh, and the books are hailed by all reviewers as great, great, great crime fiction. So if you haven't read one of the RQ novels by Joe Ard, you know, Richt is a good place to start it. You can go back to the original one, RQ and then Righteous and then pick up Wreck, that they are great crime thrillers set in Los Angeles. And we are out of time. So until next week, continue reading. And we hopefully next week we'll have the authors of the book, The Last, Elef- the Last Elephants in the studio or the, the coordinators behind this major project, The Last Elephants. Uh, and until then, good Shabbos.